Yes, uh huh. Mm-hmm. That's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. We'll take that into consideration. Okay. Um, we are today uh, beginning Genesis chapter. 43, um, and we are uh, at the point in the story of Joseph in which the brothers have gone back to Canaan and they have reported back to, to Jacob about the uh, situation in, uh, in Egypt and about what they encountered in Egypt and, and, uh, and Jacob has responded. Uh, to their request to send Benjamin with them back, and he has uh, he has declined their suggestion, and uh, so that's kind of where we are in the story. We're going to pick it up today in chapter 43 and verse one, and uh, hopefully get down through about verse 14 or 15 today. <coughs> um, but let's go back and kind of refresh our our minds. What did we talk about? Last week, in the last uh, ten verses or so of of uh, chapter forty-two, go back a little further. But the brothers just didn't—they just couldn't see the big picture. And Jesus' brothers, kind of the same way, they yeah. didn't see the big picture. You know, like, hey, what's wrong with you? Miracles and stuff. Yeah. yeah. But it wasn't the right time, and obviously his was not the right time yet either. Yeah. But it's fixing to be. Yeah. 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 Just a I, I was actually I was thinking about that very uh, point uh, yesterday that that kind of at, at each each Sunday we're we're kind of studying just kind of one little frame in a long movie. Yeah. And, uh, and and that's really how we live life, isn't it? We, we've got this big story. We've got this meta-narrative, if you will, that we're living out. But at any given point in our life, we're just looking at one frame of that long movie. And, and sometimes it's pretty hard to make sense of the movie by just looking at one frame. And that's what these guys are dealing with. <laughs> They're just looking at one frame in a, in a larger picture. And uh, it's very difficult to understand the larger picture by just looking at at one frame. What else? They continue to feel like it's the curse of God coming up on them because they didn't listen to the scripture. So uh, they had to leave the brother, and now they're if they come back, they find the money in there. Yeah, it's 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 like. Now the retribution has begun, and it's like it, it, it appears to them like it's kind of this kind of this steamroller effect. It's just one thing after another. First, they have to leave Simeon, and then they find the money in their sacks, and uh, and they've been accused of spying, and it's just one thing after another. And and so the brothers are brothers are viewing the situation as as God's retribution on them for what they did uh, 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 to Joseph. And uh, that's how they view it. How does Jacob view the situation? 
kind of got a, everything's against me actually right now. Really? Yeah. And I don't know if you care. I, by the way, I did listen to you. I wasn't here last week, but I listened to you online. So. Oh, good. Great. Uh, but he, uh, I don't know if he came to this point. I can't remember, but very end of the chapter, he says, my son shall not go down there with me. And I thought, so that's got my attention. And what are we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And his, his attitude is still... Yeah, and, and at one point he says, he's the only one I have left. And I'm going, come on, Dad. <laughs> you got nine guys staring at you there, you know. What's, what's your problem? You know, let's get over this. But, uh, mm-hmm. he, he didn't agree about... Well, I mean, Simeon didn't come back with him, so he wasn't concerned about him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it seems like yeah, it seems like he's just going to write Simeon off. You know, I mean, he takes it as a loss because he says, "You bereaved me of, of of my children of Joseph and now Simeon." Uh, but but it seems like at this point he's willing to trade Simeon for Benjamin. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you think the attitude of the parents is really sinful? Yeah. 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 I I definitely do. I think. Uh, and we talked about this last week that what we see in Jacob is just an, is, is, is an attitude of despair. He has reached a, a point of despair and, and, and in, some, in some sense he is reaping, and I think we touched on this a little bit last week, he is reaping the fruit of, of the favoritism that he's shown and the way he's treated the children over many years. And he's kind of reaping the fruit of that. Uh, and so he's really reached a point of despair. And we talked about that last week. That 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 when we that when we uh, get into that mode of despair, we have lost sight of the promises of God, and uh, and and we have and we we really just the the circumstances that we are confronting just we just allow them to overwhelm us when we're in that state of despair, and and that's the condition that we find. Jacob in, and I meant to mention this last week, and we'll talk about it more today. But I want to stress that the place that we see Joseph at at this point is not, or Jacob, excuse me, the place we see Jacob at at this point is not where he ends up. And by the time the story is over, we are going to see Jacob ascend to a place of great, remarkable, almost stunning faith. Uh, And when we get to Genesis 49, we will see that Jacob has an eye of faith for the future that gives us promises that we still cling to today. So this is not where he ends up, but this is where he is now. This point of despair, this point where he has lost sight of the promises of God and where the circumstances are just overwhelming him and he just feels like everything is against him. Okay. And, and when we talked about that, we talked about what is the answer for despair? When we are tempted to despair, when we find ourselves despairing in our life, what is the answer to despair? Okay. The promises of God. Having faith, going back to the promises of God. And Jacob has certain promises that God has given, but he's lost sight of those promises. Today we're going to talk about that some more. About those promises and what Jacob does with them. But... But he has, he has lost sight of the promises of God and that's what precipitates his despair. Okay. Well, so we talked about Jacob and Jacob's despair. 
What about, there's somebody else in that story that plays a prominent, prominent role, that passage we looked at last week. And who was that? He talked about Joseph's same situation, kind of. He was in despair, but he hung on to promises. Okay. At least at this point, better than Yeah, 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 yeah. And then who else? Reuben, okay. And what do we see Reuben doing? He's acting pretty stupid, okay? He's, Reuben sees the problem, okay? He's got, he's got a fairly accurate assessment of the problem, which is, we're going to starve to death, folks, if we don't do something, okay? We've got to go back. We've got to be able to buy more grain. We've got to get Simeon out of Hawk, you know? So, he sees the problem, but he doesn't act out of faith. He acts out of desperation. So with Jacob, we saw despair. And with Reuben, we see desperation. And, and when, when Reuben acts out of desperation, he does... There, there are a couple things that characterize his action. And one is that his actions are just stupid. <laughs> but, you know, it's just a stupid offer he makes. I, I, you know, that's being generous. But, but he offers to his dad. He says, well, listen, you give me... You give me uh, Benjamin to take, and I guarantee you safety. Well, now this is Reuben, okay? He's already failed with Joseph and failed with Simeon. Now he says, "Give me Benjamin," okay? So, so, so he's making this guarantee to his dad, and he says, "Now here's my guarantee: you can have two of my boys and kill them if I don't bring Benjamin back." Okay? Well, that really solved the problem. Okay? It's just a stupid offer. Okay? And, I mean, Jacob doesn't even give it the light of day. Jacob doesn't even respond to it. Other than to say, this ain't happening. Okay? But it's not only a stupid offer. It's a wicked offer. It's a sinful offer. Okay? And when we, when we act out of desperation, those are the kind of things we do. We do really stupid, sinful things. When we get so desperate, when the situation is so overwhelming, and we think we've got to fix it, and we've lost sight of the Lord, then we do really stupid, foolish things. <laughs> and that's what we see in Reuben. Now, we're going to talk more about Reuben today uh, and, and, and his proposal as we go on in the passage we're going to look at today. But those are some of the things we talked about last week. Anything else that, that sticks out in your mind that you want to mention? I don't remember, maybe I missed it. Did you guys ever talk about why he picked Simeon from among the brothers? We did. We didn't talk we didn't talk about that, but I intended to talk about that, yeah. Um, why do you think he picked Simeon? I don't know. That's what I was thinking. I... Uh, here's a question. Uh, why wouldn't he pick Simeon? Who else would he have picked? Who, who would we normally think he should have picked? The oldest, which would have been Reuben. Okay, so why didn't he pick Reuben? I think we might have mentioned this last week. Why didn't he pick Reuben? Yeah, okay. He found out that Reuben had actually tried to stand up for him and tried to protect him. Uh, and, and, and so apparently he passes over Reuben, who is the firstborn, and he goes to Simeon, the secondborn. Okay. Now, why does he pick Simeon? Okay, okay. Uh, Simeon, Simeon is this is this particularly 
violent character. We we saw him at Shechem and what he did at Shechem. Okay, and uh, and so he so he passes by Reuben. And he chooses Simeon because Simeon is the second born. And Simeon is this one that's kind of really prone to violence. And, and the, kind of the assumption is that since he, since he passes, by, uh, passes by Reuben and picks Simeon, that's another factor that may, uh, that may have been in his consideration there. If he had picked Reuben, the firstborn, the, the brothers would have had a motivation to just leave Reuben there. <laughs> by passing by Reuben, he's uh, partly because of Reuben's uh, protection of him and care for him, but possibly there's also a realization that as the firstborn, there, there might be a temptation there on the part of the brothers to just say, well, you know, we get rid of him and then we get part of the inheritance. So uh, I don't know what I don't know what all his factors were, but those are some thoughts come on. Do you have any others, Mike, as to why you think no, I don't know if he said that. I thought he might have looked at who had the most kids or less kids. Yeah, we. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Actually, I don't know if he would have known that at this point. Yeah, I don't know if he would have known that. How much he heard him talking? Yeah. 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 We don't know exactly how much he knew. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Let's pick up the story then in chapter forty-three, in verse one. <clears throat> Excuse me, and they have been uh, they've been back in Canaan now for some period of time, <coughs> and the story resumes in verse one. Now the famine was severe in the land, so it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt that their father said to them, "Go back and buy us a little food." Judah spoke to him, however, saying, "The man solemnly warned us." You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Then Israel said, why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, the man questioned us particularly about us and our relatives, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? Judah said to his father, Israel, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. We as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry down to the man as a present a little balm and a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand. Take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. 
Take your brother also and arise, return to the man. And may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release you and your old, uh, release to you your older brother and Benjamin and as, excuse me, your other brother and Benjamin and as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the man took his, this present. So the men took this present and they took double the money in their hand and Benjamin and they rose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Okay? Well, so they've been back home for a while. They've been eating this grain. How long have they been back home? Long enough to eat it all. Long enough to eat it all. And to travel there and back twice. Okay. Now, does that give us any clue of how they've been handling this supply of food they've had? Yeah, it seems like they've probably been rationing it out. Apparently, because of Jacob's intransigence, they've had so, so much food and they could have made two trips back to buy food by now, but they haven't, which means they've had to stretch out the supply of food that they did have much longer than they would have ordinarily had to do. So Jacob and his intransigence and his fear about Benjamin is causing the entire family to suffer. Right? in his despair and in his fear, because he's lost sight of the promises of God, his whole family is suffering. His whole family is doing without. Okay? And so this drags on for a long time. And so now they're out of food. Okay. And so they're out of food. And what does he tell them? Okay, go get specifically how much more? Just get a little. And I'm going, uh, excuse me, Jacob? (laughs) How many trips do you plan on making down there? Okay, what is this? What is this little? Okay, now, why do you think he suggests that they just get a little food? Pardon? Well, I can't take that much much longer to load a little more on your donkeys. Yeah. I don't know. Do you think there's any way they could have bought it from someone else? I'm wondering if maybe they he thought that they could maybe go certain Well, it's something like that, I'm sure. It's uh, it's sounds like a course of dealing here. Pardon? Sounds like a course of dealing here. He's realized he's got to the point that you know we transacted with him once. This this is going to more or less show that we can now do this for a longer oh. period of time. Okay. He's confident in some ways that they're going to be able to do it. Yeah, he's he's thinking somehow they're going to be able to pull this off. Okay. In thinking about that, what is he dismissing? Well, the son. Well, yes, but but yeah, but that's true. Yes. Okay, and he's still thinking, I'm not going to send Benjamin. You guys go down. Okay, so, so, but in, but in all this plan, what is he managing not to deal with? Okay, his, 
Well, sending in prison, yes. Okay. Obviously, I'm not asking this question, right? Because I'm not getting the answer I'm fishing for, right? Okay. Okay. What he, what he is dismissing is, is the fact that his sons are charged with spying. He's not considering that, right? He's not considering the fact that, that that guy down there in Egypt has said, you know, you can't come down here again because I think you're spies. So the only way you can come down here is you prove to me you're not spies. Okay. Now, now Jacob is thinking, well, okay, I know he said all that, but maybe if I send the, kid, the guys back and I just ask him to buy a little bit, we can pull this off. Okay. And, and, and it appears that what Jacob has done is he has managed to convince himself that the issue is not really that his sons have been charged with spying, but that really the problem is with the guy down there in Egypt. And he's reluctant to give generously. And so maybe the reason why he's charging my sons with spying is just because he doesn't really have very much. And so he's got to he's got to kind of call out who he gives grain to. And so maybe so you see what he's done. He's rationalized his way through this and figured out this is Jacob all over again. I mean, you know, Jacob is the conniver, planner, schemer from the beginning. Okay, so this is just Jacob's natural man just thinking there's a way to pull this off. Okay, and he's and 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 he's he's denying the reality of it. And he's saying, okay, well maybe the problem is they don't have enough grain down there, and so. They're being pretty stingy about who they give it to. And so this guy, you know, he's just trying to eliminate how many people he has to give grain to. And so maybe if we just go back and we just ask for a little bit, we'll be able to pull this off. Now, I don't know exactly what he's thinking, but it kind of seems to me that's what's in the back of Jacob's mind. He's trying to figure out some way that he can manipulate the situation to get a little bit of grain to keep his family alive without sending Benjamin. Now, this isn't the... I wouldn't suggest that this is the interpretation of the passage or the significance of the passage, but as I, but as I looked at what Jacob was doing there, I couldn't help but see an analogy or an illustration of the way we pray sometimes. That, that oftentimes we come to God and we just ask for a little bit. When what we really need is a bunch. We are really in desperate, great need. But for whatever reason, we come to God and we're, we're just we're afraid to ask for what we really need. And so we just ask for a little bit. And I think part of Jacob's problem is I think he's and I think I think and I don't know this for certain, but it appears to me that Jacob thinks the supply in Egypt is limited and it's not. And the other problem is, is he doesn't understand how generous Joseph is. And we might say, well, why would he? Well, because Joseph sent him a signal. What is the signal that Joseph sent him of his generosity? Okay, he put the money back in the sack. Remember when we talked about that? We said, what are the reasons for that? And, and I believe that the, the, the primary reason was his generosity. He just didn't want to charge his family money for the grain to keep them alive. And, and, but see, Jacob doesn't understand. Jacob, that money in the sack is an evil omen. It's not a good sign of the generosity of Zalpanapaneah. It is instead an evil omen. And 
And I think oftentimes we make the same kind of mistakes with God. We do not understand that he really does own the cattle on a thousand hills. We do not understand the great unlimited wealth of God. And we do not understand his overwhelming generosity and his great love for us. And so when we come to him, we just ask for a little bit. Rick, another thought here, I've not thought of it in that light. Uh, maybe we're afraid to exercise much faith because we can't give God our vengeance. Yep. I mean, that's we always want to hold on to something. Uh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're probably right there, too. Yeah. That's a good point. That, that we're, we think God's holding out on us because in reality we're holding out on God. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's just a, that's kind of a side lot. I thought that throw that in at no extra charge. But 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 as I was reading that uh, this week and thinking about that, I was thinking, boy, that's kind of the way my prayer life is sometimes. And I just. I really don't have enough confidence in the generosity and the wealth of the God to whom I'm going, and so I just ask for a little bit. Well, well, that doesn't say that. Yeah, I don't know. He, 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 it doesn't say, so I don't know. It kind of seems like he's planning on sending them all, but uh, except for Benjamin, but. Well, so he says, okay, so he makes his, uh, he tells his sons to go down, and then what happens? I think he just doesn't prepare to wipe everything off. He says in 14 and 15, he says, uh, basically, if I'm to children, I'll be Okay, but you're jumping over a bunch of verses. <laughs> what happens immediately after he tells the sons to go? Okay, who refuses? Who refuses? Judah. Judah speaks up. Okay, now we've had a major shift in the story. Because up till now, Reuben, who's the oldest, has kind of been doing the leadership thing. Okay, but now Judah steps forward. Okay. So we're skipping by Reuben and Simeon and Levi and we're coming to Judah. And Judah steps up. And Judah says, now wait a minute, Dad. The man solemnly warned us that we would not see his face again unless our brother was with us, Benjamin. Okay. So Judah now steps into the forefront and Judah takes the leadership and Reuben fades out of the picture. Okay. And, uh, and there is some significance here. The, as we study Judah's appeal to his father, we're going to find that Judah does things differently than Reuben did them. And Judah prevails where, Benja, where Reuben fails. Okay? And not only here, but further on down the story. So Judah is now stepping into the role of leadership. And he will stay in that role of leadership as the narrative goes forward. Okay, and Reuben is Reuben is fading out, and and Judah is stepping in. Now, the the question is, since Reuben's proposal to his father that he made in the passage we looked at last week was so ridiculous and so in effect, I mean, his dad didn't even respond to it, other than to say this ain't happening. Okay, so the question arises: Why does the why does the Lord, why does the Holy Spirit even tell us about Reuben? Why does the Holy Spirit even tell us about Reuben's offer? Since it's really 
irrelevant. It doesn't really have any effect. Okay. Okay. It it does show his desperation, but and, and this actually kind of brings out my point a little bit that that Reuben's the story about Reuben there is placed now. Of course, we spread it out over two weeks, but in the narrative, it's really placed in almost juxtaposition to Judah. In other words, the two are placed side by side. We have Reuben and we have Reuben's attempt at leadership and Reuben's attempt to solve the problem. And we have Judah's uh, leadership and Judah's attempt to solve the problem and the contrast in the results. Okay, All that is placed in very close proximity to one another as if the Holy Spirit is inviting us to compare these two gentlemen. To consider, to consider Reuben and to consider Judah in comparison and contrast to one another. meant to be carried out. I think it was just an expression of his, I really mean that. And it's kind of like a little kid, you know, across my heart, hope to die kind of thing. And you don't, you don't even think about what that mm-hmm. means, really. Yeah. mean that. But, yeah. I mean, he was just saying, you know, Dad, you, this one I'm really serious about. Oh, uh, yeah, and we talked about that last week. It's, was he serious or was it just an exclamation of, you know, exaggeration, desperation? Whichever the case, it was ineffective. But, but I agree with your point. Yeah. 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 Uh, So whichever the case was with Reuben, he's obviously being ineffective, whether it was a sincere offer or just a desperate, you know, kind of exaggeration to illustrate his commitment. uh, It it, it didn't achieve the desired results. Okay, And so it seems like the Holy Spirit is putting these two guys in very close proximity to one another, their stories, in order that we might compare them and consider the difference. And I think that when we look at Reuben and when we look at Judah, it's like comparing the difference between the flesh and the spirit. Here we have a guy, Reuben, who's acting out of desperation. He sees the problem. He assesses the problem. He knows what the problem is. But his solution to the problem is totally of the flesh. If he's sincere in his offer to his father, it's clearly of the flesh. But even if he's insincere in his offer to his father, he is just trying by exaggeration to convince his father that Benjamin will be safe with him. Okay? And in either case, what Reuben has done is, is Reuben has simply relied on the ways of the world, if you will. Reuben is just relying on his own sheer persuasive power, if you will. Or, at worst, he's relying on the life of his sons to pull this off. It's the flesh. It's a guy acting out of selfishness and acting out of self-concern and, and not really thinking and speaking in righteous ways. So, in one sense, Reuben represents for us the flesh and the effect of Reuben's, the result of Reuben's efforts show us what the results are when we operate in the flesh. Well, didn't you also try to work in that? Uh, I mean, he said, what is it going to profit us if we're going to kill them? Let's sell them. And Judah did. Judah did in chapter 37. But what happened to Judah in chapter 38? Yeah. 
Judah, that's what we saw when we studied the story of Judah and Tamar. And that was, that's the significance of chapter 38 being in the story. That's the significance of the Holy Spirit, including chapter 38, where he interrupts the whole flow of the Joseph narrative by telling us the story of Judah and Tamar is to show us that God is working on Judah and Judah is changing. And that's, you're exactly right. Judah did do that in chapter 37. But something dramatic has happened in the life of Judah in the intervening years. And remember that when we looked at chapter 38 and the story of Judah and Tamar, that I pointed out to you that the story, that that chapter covers a period of 20 years. Okay. We read that story and we kind of think of it all happening very quickly. But in reality, the end of the story of Judah and Tamar, where Judah actually repents and acknowledges that he sinned against Tamar, that that actually occurs just before the events that we're looking at now in the story of Joseph. So, you can lose sight of that when you read chapter 38 and then you go to chapter 39 and it takes you all the way back to the beginning of Joseph's time in Egypt and you go all the way through that 20-year experience. But the end of chapter 38 actually coincides with the time just before the brothers go down to Egypt to buy grain. So, the point is that Judah is beginning to be changed by God. And so now Judah steps up. And Judah also correctly assesses the situation. He says to Dad, okay, now Dad, I don't know what you're thinking here. You know, I don't know why you think we can go down and buy a little grain and pull this thing off. But this guy said, we cannot see him again unless we have Benjamin with us. And so Judah not only correctly assesses the situation, but he tells his dad what he's going to do and what he's not going to do. He says, you send Benjamin, I'll go. You don't send Benjamin, we're not going. So he kind of lays it down. He lays down the law with Dad. And then he makes his offer. And his offer is what? Excuse me. Let me back up. Uh, he, he uh, in verse... Uh, uh, he, says, he says, we will go... Uh, Uh, in verse 5, he says, But if you do not send him, we will not go. For the man said to us, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. What is Jacob's response at that point? Okay, why do you treat me so rotten? Yeah. Why do you treat me like this? Now, I, I, I want to I point out to you that it's very easy for us to think that Jacob reaches the decision that he reaches ultimately, to send Benjamin because of the pressure of the famine. But that doesn't appear to be the case. Because already he has the pressure of the famine and now he has, now he has Judah saying, we aren't going, Dad, unless you send Benjamin. And still, at this point, Jacob is operating in this self-centered, fearful frame of mind. And he responds by accusing his sons. It's a stupid accusation. It's a silly remark to make. Why do you treat me like this? Why you know? And, of course, the brothers respond appropriately. Dad, what did you expect? You know, I mean, what would you have done? You know, We had no idea that the guy was going to respond. There was, 
they're just pointing out to Dad, Dad, you're not being reasonable. You're not being rational here. And what I want to point out to you is, even though now he has all the pressure of the famine and the pressure of his family starving to death, at this point in the narrative, he's still intransigent. He's still refusing to budge on Benjamin. But then something happens. What happens? Okay, what else does he say? I mean, Jacob knew that. But Jacob hears something from Judah he has never heard from one of his sons before. I will be surety for him. The word surety there means I will stand in the place of. Judah says to Dad, Dad, I will be sure. Now, what's the difference between Judah's offer and Reuben's offer? Okay, that's right. Reuben offers his sons as hostages. You can kill them. Judah makes no comment about it, anybody being put to death, although that could have been the result of his pledge. He makes no comment about that. He makes, he makes no promises about that. He just simply says, Dad, I will stand in Benjamin's place. He takes personal responsibility and he says, Dad, if I don't bring him back and put him before you, then let the blame rest on me before your eyes forever. And Judah... Judah, for only the second time in his life, begins to act heroically. The first time was just a few months or a couple of years before with Tamar. And now he steps up to the plate. And, and Jacob sees in Judah what he has not seen in any of his sons since the disappearance of Joseph. He sees one of his sons step up to the plate and take, and take personal responsibility and say, Dad, it's on me. And, I, you know, I don't, have, I don't believe at all that Jacob could foresee what was going to happen down in Egypt. But I think what Jacob heard was that Joseph was saying, or that Judah was saying, when push comes to shove, if it's Benjamin's life or my life, Dad, it'll be my life. And, of course, that's exactly what we'll see when we get to Egypt, right? And so, Jacob sees a transformation in his son Judah. And that appears to be the catalyst that changes Jacob's mind. And Jacob, from this point forward, becomes submissive, if you will. He submits to the will of God. Now, of course, we haven't been couching this in the terms of the will of God, but clearly this is the will of God, isn't it? It's God's will that he send Benjamin down there in order that this process can be completed and that the family can be saved and they can all be brought to Egypt. That's God's plan and that's God's purpose. But, but, but Jacob in his, de- in his despair and Jacob in his fear and Jacob in his favoritism has been so blinded he cannot see that. 
And so he has just steadfastly refused to submit to what God wanted to do in his life. But now, for the first time since the disappearance of Joseph, he hears one of his sons step up to the plate. You know, when we when we looked at the at the boys, when we looked at the young men back earlier in the early story of Joseph and, and remembered Jacob kept putting more and more responsibility on Joseph. Why? Because Joseph was the one upon whom he could put responsibility. He simply didn't trust the other brothers. And so he and that's why he gave him the robe. The robe was to mark Joseph out as the one upon whom he was, you know, he was putting the responsibility and the obligation uh, uh, of, of taking care of things and making sure things were done right because he could trust Joseph. And now Joseph disappears, and for all these years he's had nobody. He's had no son he could trust. That's why he makes comments like, You bereave me of Joseph and Simeon. Because he didn't trust any of his kids. And now, finally, Judah steps up to the plate. And Judah says, Dad, I'll be the man. And Judah, when he does this, becomes for us a type of Christ, doesn't he? When he says, I will be surety for him. I will stand in his place. Now, he has no... Neither Jacob nor Judah have any awareness of the implications of what Judah has just said. It will become graphically clear to Judah later the significance of that. And the question, the test for Judah will be, will he keep his word? But he will be tested on that. But what we see in Judah is one who would say, I will stand in their place, Father. And in that, we see Christ, don't we? And that's the difference between Reuben and Judah. And what Benjamin needed at this point, what Benjamin needed was not a Reuben. What Benjamin needed was a Judah. And in, in, our, in our predicament of sin and lostness, what we need is not a Reuben, but we need a Judah, don't we? And, and what the world is about is the world is about giving us Reubens to solve our sin predicament, isn't it? We have, we have a predicament of sin and our life is in peril and the world comes to us and says, well, you do this, or you do this, or you do this, or you do this, or you do this, you, you know, any number of things. But the one thing the world is unwilling to do, unable to do, is stand in my place. And anything that the world offers me to deal with this predicament of my sin and my rebellion and my alienation from God, the only thing the world offers me is ineffective, as Reuben was ineffective. And it would have been a scary thing to see how Reuben would have dealt with the predicament that Judah faces later in the story when Benjamin's life really is threatened. The world offers us all kinds of Rubens. But what we need is a Judah. And we have one. We have, in fact, the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
who says to his father, Father, I will be surety for Rick. I will stand in this place. I will guarantee him. And I will take the blame. And there's something about Judah's offer then to his father Jacob that finally breaks him. And Jacob's heart is changed. Now, I don't want to suggest that the pressure of the famine was did not have some effect, but it's very. It seems very clear from where the from the way the narrative written is written. Is it is it really the trigger that finally kind of broke the dam with Jacob and broke through and and put him in a position where he was finally willing to move forward in the way he needed to move forward was Jake, was Judah's offer. And so he finally says to his sons, oh, and by the way, do you notice what is Jacob called throughout this part of the narrative? He's called Israel. I mean, his name's been changed to Israel sometime before, but throughout this whole section of the narrative, he's called Israel even before he makes this change. And it's, you know, I, I be honest with you, I don't know the total significance of that, but it's like the Lord is trying to say something here to us. That this is a this is a turning point in the life of Jacob, and I really think it is. That that this is the point where Jacob, who Jacob has been so fearful and so in despair and so so lost sight of the promises of God that he's unable to move and he's unable to act decisively to do what he needs to do to save his family. That finally, through all the pressure of everything that's going on around him and the pressure of the famine, but ultimately then through seeing his own son break before God and repent and and take the responsibility for Benjamin. That in seeing that, somehow Jacob's heart is melted. Now, he's not brimming with confidence. I don't want to misportray it. It's not glorious faith here. okay? But it is a brokenness and it's a yieldedness and it's a submission that's done in faith. And I'll show you why I say that in a minute. And so he says, okay, if it has to be this way, if, you know, if we need to do this, then let's do it this way. And he suggests putting together, first of all, a gift for Zaphonath Paneah. Does that ring any bells in the life of Jacob? Esau. Yeah. This is not the first time in Jacob's life when he had an adversary and he sought to appease him with a gift. Okay. He did it with Esau. Right after he'd had his encounter with with God at the Jabbok. And he sent that gift forward in an effort to somehow appease his adversary. And so here again, we see him now saying, well, let's send a gift. But his gift to Esau was extravagant. It was overwhelming. His gift to Zaphonath Paneah is just a little gift. He says, you know, take a little honey and, you know, uh, those that honey and, and uh, you know, 
What's the other thing he says there? Take a little. Um, yes, yeah, and and the idea is it's not an extravagant gift, but it's you know, and maybe it's not an extravagant gift because they're in the middle of a famine. I don't know, but it's just take a little, okay, and take this to Zaphonaphtani. You give this to him, and take the money back that was placed in your sacks. Why? Because why? It may have been what? It may have been a mistake. It may have been a. This is the first time that, that this is the first time this has been allowed in their minds. Every reference to this money in their sacks up to now has struck terror in their hearts. But now Jacob is starting to think, well, maybe it was just a mistake. And he's starting to see that there are other possibilities. And then he. You know, and then he says, and then take the other money and, and take all that. And then he says, take Benjamin and go down to, to the man. I think there's something else in there that I think is somewhat significant. He also provided a, uh, a prayer of favor right there. You, you keep getting ahead of me. <laughs> you keep wanting to get to that verse, don't you? Well, that's where we're going next, okay? And that's exactly what he does. And that's why I say that, that Jacob's final kind of submission or yielding here is not a yielding or submission that comes out of fatalism, but it comes out of faith. Because he says, uh, he, he says to his sons, he says, and may God Almighty grant you compassion in the eyes of the man. That name for God there is El Shaddai. Okay. He doesn't say, may Yahweh grant you compassion. He doesn't say, may Elohim grant you compassion. He says, may El Shaddai grant you compassion. And I think that's a clue to what's going on in Jacob's mind. Because when Jacob first left home, when he was sent away from home as a refugee, remember? When Dad sent, when Isaac sent him away, before he sent him away, he blessed him in the name of El Shaddai. Not in the name of Yahweh, but in the name of El Shaddai. And when, and when Jacob came back after his years uh, up there in Haran with family and, and Laban and stuff, and he comes back and he goes to Shechem and everything, and then Rachel dies, and finally they end up back at Bethel for the second time. And when he's back at Bethel the second time, God appears to him and introduces himself to Jacob as not Yahweh, not Elohim, but El Shaddai, God Almighty. I am God Almighty, he says to Jacob. And it's like, it's as if. Jacob, at this point, when he calls on the compassion of El Shaddai, it's like he's finally remembering the covenant promises of God. It's like he's finally remembering that God had blessed him through his father and God had come to him and appeared to him uh, twice at Bethel, but particularly the second time at Bethel, and had introduced himself as El Shaddai. And it's like Jacob is going, okay, God has made me some promises. And for the first time in this whole narrative, Jacob is finally starting to remember the promises of God. And so he says, may that God grant you compassion. And then finally he says, 
And if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. And when we read that, it's kind of easy to misunderstand that. It's kind of easy to see that as a uh, to, to see that as some kind of a you know kind of well I give up. Okay. But I want to suggest to you that that's really a great statement of faith, and we have some other examples in Scripture. Yeah, I've told you many times that when I'm studying for a lesson, I try to make sure that I memorize the whole passage, okay, uh, just as part of my study procedure, okay. And as I was, every time, I, or not every time, but oftentimes as I was reciting this passage this week, I would get to this part, and instead of saying, and if I am bereaved, I would slip and say, and if I perish, I perish. You see, Jacob is kind of saying what Esther was saying. There's a right thing to do here. And I am called to do the right thing. And what really happens to me isn't important. And it's not just Esther, but it's also Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Is it not? When they are facing the fiery furnace and they say, and God will deliver us, Daniel chapter 3. But if not, you see that oftentimes when God calls us to move forward in righteousness and in faith, and we want to believe it will always turn out well. But in the back of our minds we know it doesn't always turn out well, even when we do the right thing. And Esther knew it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew it. And Jesus knew it in Gethsemane. When he said, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so I was reminded, and just in closing, flip over to Hebrews chapter 11. And, of course, you know the chapter. It's the Hall of Fame of Faith. And earlier in the chapter, uh, the writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, goes through all these great men of faith, including Jacob and others. He goes through all these great men of faith and the great things they accomplished by faith. Uh, and then he gets down uh, to verse uh, 32, and, and he's kind of he's running out of time. Okay, and he's, he's, his mind's running ahead and he's thinking of all these different people and he's, he's already listed a bunch and he, he's, he's got to finish this book sometime. So he says, And what more shall I say, for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises. shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight, women received back their dead by resurrection, etc., etc., etc. And I think, I can do that by faith. If I believe God, look at all these things I can do. I can put foreign armies to fight and I can receive back my children by resurrection from the dead and I can do all those things by faith. So I'll go ahead and I'll live by faith because I get all these goodies that he's already been talking about. But I stopped in the middle of a verse, didn't I? And others were tortured, 
not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourging, just also chains and imprisoned. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They, were, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. And as I was thinking about that verse, that passage last night, I was thinking, you know, it's real easy to talk about faith when, everything, when we think everything's going to work out. But what Jacob is saying is, I'm going to walk righteously here regardless of what happens. And sometimes when we walk by faith, we end up being sawn in two. Sometimes when we walk by faith, we end up being stoned. And the question is, will we walk by faith? And he says, those people who walked by faith were approved. You see, what what makes me approved is not that everything turns out hunky-dory for me in the end. What makes me approved is if I walk by faith and trust God. And if I do that, in the end, I will be complete. And what strikes me about Jacob here is he's finally made that, he's made that step of faith and he said, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved, but this is the right thing to do and I'm going to do it. Okay? Well, next week we'll go on and see what happens.